Now, this series titled A Field Guide for Living in an Insane World is implying or saying directly, I guess, that the world is crazy. And we know that. We know the world is crazy. And, it's, and if you're a Christian, the world is not just crazy, it's also not Christian. It means the beliefs and the values and the practices that we have are different from the world that is around us. And it can feel like walking through you know, a fun house with all the different things and all the different mirrors, or it can feel like a corn maze if you've ever done one of those, and, and you're not really sure how to navigate through all the different twists and turns, and how do I get from here to here, and is this the right way, is this the right way, and it can be confusing. It's easy to get lost. It's easy to be overwhelmed with the difficulty. It's easy to be overwhelmed with all of the questions and problems. It's easy to be confused. It's easy to be changed, to just adopt the things that are around us. And we want wisdom. We want wisdom. Living in an insane world means we want wisdom. We want answers. We want strength to be able to endure and to keep going. We want to be able to face difficulty and do it well. We want to be able to remain distinct. We want to be able to remain rooted and clear in what we know of who God is and what he says. And we often find ourselves in a tension of how do we neither run away from everything nor just become like everything around us. How do we, the Bible uses the language of how do we remain in the world, but not of the world? We're here, but we are not identified with. How do, how do we do that? That is difficult. Some of you maybe are questioning, questioning Christianity, unsure where you stand. Maybe it's because you're exploring, or maybe you have identified with Christianity, but aren't sure anymore. Some of us are maybe just trying to understand the world. Why is it the way it is? How, why are things they, the way that they are? Some of us are trying to teach our kids and help them be rooted in the faith. Some of you maybe are trying to help other people, whether that's in the church or friends around you. Some of us are just trying to make choices as we navigate through the world, at your work or in relationships or just how you think about certain things around you. There's all sorts of things that we need, which is why we are going through a whole series around this, but part of what we need is an understanding of how to think about the values that are around us. We need to be able to assess the values that are around us and identify the values that are around us and know what to do and think with values that are around us. So really today, we're going to explore how to understand the values that are around us. So I'm going to read this next section, and then we will explore this. He says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, he's quoting from the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. 
For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. How do we understand the values that are around us? If we want to be able to navigate through the world, one of the things that you have to be able to do, that we have to be able to do, is understand the values around us. And there's three things that will help us with that from this text today. The first is that we need to simply, this is the most basic, but this will go in kind of building blocks. The most basic thing is we need to realize that the world has values. We need to realize that the world has values. And oftentimes, we don't realize that. You've maybe heard this before, but somebody went to a fish and said, how's the water? And the fish said, what's water? And that's oftentimes how it is with values around us. We don't actually even realize that they're there. It's just the normal stuff that we live in. We wouldn't say, oh yes, here are the values. It's just life. It's just the norm. It's just the way things are. We just think of it as the way things is. Sometimes this happens, you see this uh, when people first get married. That maybe one person has always grown up a certain way and this person's always grown up a certain way and they come together and think, of course, my way is just the normal way. It's not that I do things a certain distinct way. I just do things the normal way. This is how you're supposed to be on time for things. That's just the normal way. And then this person says, huh, on time for things? That's weird. Of course not. Fashionably late, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, you know. That's how most of you think about church, right? <clears throat> no offense, maybe a little offense, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and maybe the way that money is handled. Some people are really into getting a bargain and getting a deal, and that's how they grew up, is always getting the sale, always getting other people. No, that's not how you use money. You always buy the thing that's going to last, and it's going to endure and save the money until you can get that thing. So different values that people bring to the table, but... We all have values. We all have values, and we live by our values. Whether you know it or not, we live by our values. This was something I came across uh, that was a, a wide survey based on robust analysis of 500,000 value graphic surveys in 152 different languages, and it talks about the 56 values that drive all human behavior across the world. But I also thought this just opening line was helpful. It says, neuroscientists, psychologists, and sociologists agree that our values determine everything that we do. And I, I believe that that's true. Our values determine how we live. And it, it isn't even just personally. As you look across the world, there's different values. Cultures will share some values, but there's also different values. And if you've visited other places in the world, you know that everywhere is not the same that people value different things. Some cultures value honor and respect and our elders more than other cultures. Some cultures value morality and righteousness more than other cultures. Some cultures value privacy and some cultures value connectivity and some cultures value individualism and some cultures value collectivism. And there's different values that people have across cultures and it shapes the things around them. 
in this letter, Paul talks about the Jews asking for signs and before talks about power and the Greeks seeking wisdom. Those were some of the main things that those culture valued. The Greeks, and you know this because uh, growing up we are educated in a lot of this stuff with Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all these philosophers. We know, yes, Greek culture really valued wisdom. That was something they prized, being able to think about things and understand things and be able to understand all the logic behind things. And, And the Jewish culture really valued signs or power. We value some of these things today as well. Sometimes we think about what you know and what we can do. Those, those things can still be things that today we value. How much do you know? Some people really, that's a value of theirs. Education and where you, where you were educated or the people that you follow online and the books that you've read. And for some people it is power. The things that you've been able to accomplish and the things you've been able to do, those are the things that we value. So those can still be values of ours today. But whatever our values are, we, we live by our values. In America, we have our own values. Wisdom and power might be a part of that, but individualism and sexual expression and materialism, freedom, self-fulfillment, those are basic to us. We don't even question them. They're just normal. Of course I should do whatever I want to do and follow my heart and be what I want to be and be true to my... Of course I should do that. Those are just normal. That's not, it's not even thought of as a value. It's just thought of as normal. So we need to realize that the world has, that people have, that the world and individuals, we need to realize the world has values. Some of that is just understanding you're a fish and there is something called water. Just to be aware of it. But additionally, because the world has values, those values are reinforced constantly. It's not just that the world has values, but that those values are continually taught, that they're continually deepened, that cultures want those values to be reinforced and understood. There's all sorts of different ways that that is done. One of the most basic ways that we might not even think about, and especially in the ancient world, this would have been even more uh, prominent is just the architecture that's around us. Even today, I don't know if you've been to Rome. We had the chance to go five years ago or so. The Colosseum, massive. Even today, as you look at the landscape. But think about back then. Think about 2,000 years ago. How massive of a building that that is. And what is that doing? It's communicating values. It's communicating the power of Rome. It's communicating that you cannot mess with us. There will be penalties. It's also communicating the power of the state in bringing people together and for fun and entertainment, violent as it may be. It communicates certain things. Architecture was one of the main ways that that was done, of how the values of something were reinforced. When you go to Greece and you see these massive temples that are above the city, It's communicating values. Architecture is still, that's still done today when we think about places in our country where there's prominent architecture communicating values. Liberty, freedom. You think about what this communicates. This is a massive cathedral in Germany. You think about what does it communicate. This this was built hundreds of years ago, but to think about what does it communicate when this is 
the thing that you see throughout the city. That's intentionally trying to communicate and reinforce values. Or today, I don't know if you've had a chance to see this in person, this is the sphere in Vegas. Cost $2 billion to build. Massive, huge structure. Saw it a couple months ago. And this is communicating values. This is not, it's not always a basketball. It can become anything. It communicates values of technology, of entertainment, progress. Communicates values. So when you think about architecture, that's even just a simple way that we understand culture has values, and it's constantly trying to reinforce those values in different ways. The celebrations that we have reinforce values. In America, we celebrate the 4th of July. There's other things that are celebrated. Whatever parades, whatever festivals, those are communicating, this is what we value. It happens through teaching, through literature, through media. Paul mentions this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? He's talking about the values that are communicated through education and persuasion and rhetoric. Someone who is wise and who is teaching and debating that values are communicated often through teaching avenues. Today, that still happens in education. Our values as a society are reinforced. It happens through media and movies and literature that the values that we have are reinforced. So we need to realize the world has values, and those values are constantly being communicated. The world, and when I say the world, I mean Denver, Arvada, America. Yes, this is true globally, but just think about ours. The world has values, and it is not okay with it just having those, but you being neutral. It wants to communicate those, reinforce those, teach those, and you are constantly being told the values. You are constantly being sold the values. You are constantly being persuaded, argued with, reasoned. You are constantly being formed by the values around you. Whether we realize it or not, it's constantly happening. Even when you just think about the skyline and architecture, it's constantly communicating to us whether we realize it or not. Values are constantly being communicated, being persuasive to us. So that's the first piece, is we just need to realize the world has values. And this is important because often we're uncritical. Often we just think it's normal, we want entertainment, we want some kind of emotional experience, we want to be helped, we want to belong, but we're not actually discerning what are the values being communicated. We're not actually asking the question, what values are being communicated through this song or through this institution or through this place that exists or through this film or through this technology? What values are being communicated? Oftentimes, we're uncritical. You need to understand the world has values. If you want to be able to navigate through the world, we need to understand values. There are versions of the true, the good, the beautiful how to live life that are constantly being communicated and persuaded to us. 
So you should ask, what are the values with this thing, with this teaching, with this communication? But secondly, we need to recognize that the world's values are hostile to God. You need to recognize that it's not just that the world has values, but that the world's values are hostile to God. Now, at times, we may be aware of maybe what we would call bad values. Greed, violence, consumerism, materialism. Maybe at times we're aware that there are bad values, but think that other values, other things, are just neutral. Can't we just all agree on these things? Yes, if, some, if a culture valued murder, we would say that's bad. And then maybe even in our own culture, things I mentioned like consumerism, materialism, greed, violence, we would say, okay, yeah, those are bad values, but other values are just neutral. Can't we all just agree on these things? But the world's values are hostile to God. The world in the Bible, when it uses that language, the world, it doesn't just mean the collection of all people. It's talking about a whole system that is separate, distinct from, apart from, and hostile to God. Paul uses the language here when he says the world's wisdom, or the world did not know God. That there is a whole way of living and being and relating that is in the Bible is called the world that is a disconnect separate from God. And even think about what he says here. The Greeks, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Those are not inherently bad things, right? Power, signs, it's not inherently bad. Wisdom, the Bible actually talks a lot about wisdom. That's not inherently bad. So when Paul's talking about the world and then what he drills in on specifically for these people that they valued power and wisdom, those aren't inherently bad things. He doesn't, he doesn't call out these inherently evil things. Power and wisdom. Those are things that are not bad in and of themselves. But they are either, when we talk about, when I say that the world's values are hostile to God, it's either because they are false, bad, twisted values, the most easily identifiable, or it's because they are a different definition of what God means by those things, of what the Bible means by those things, that's happening here. Or it means that it is hostile to God because it's just the absence of God from that value. There is no wisdom if it isn't God's wisdom. There is no true power if God is eliminated from that equation. The world's values are hostile to God. Now, I'll say this. Today, sometimes it can be harder to identify that because many of the values that we have as a culture are explicitly borrowing from Christianity. So there's things that we value as a culture. Freedom, equality, justice. There's things we value as a culture. Humility, Love. There's things that we value as a culture that actually are 
borrowing and indebted to Christianity, whether today it is specifically drawing on that or not, it was built on that foundation. In the ancient world, equality didn't matter. There was no such thing as human rights. That, that didn't exist. That came from Christianity. There was no such thing as a concern for true justice for all. There was classes of people. There was no such thing as humility being a value. Humility was despised. Loving your neighbor, those kinds of things were not just inherent to the society around it. Those things are built on Christianity. There's a couple books, if you're interested, uh, that are recent works. One is called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. One is called The Air We Breathe, came out uh, recently. It says how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, equality, other things in the book. He talks about science, justice, how all these things really are built on Christianity. They were not values until Christianity made them values. So in part today, it can be hard to say, well, these values actually seem really Christian. Well, there is a part of that that's true. But if you remove God, you see the hostility. Love is not love if you actually take away God from the equation. Happiness isn't real happiness. If you take away God from the equation, equality and justice are always only determined for some people if you take God away from the equation. Health, what it means to have a self, family, freedom, many things that our culture actually says it values, if you remove God, the definition is going to be off. There will be a hostility to how God says those things are to be. Which is why G.K. Chesterton great writer thinker says about the virtues that our culture has today. He was writing a while ago, but still the virtues are let loose and the virtues wander more wildly and the virtues do more terrible damage. He's comparing them to vices. Once Christianity is removed, the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. Once you remove Christianity, there's vices that exist I cut that part of the quote out. There's vices that exist, but it's actually the virtues that oftentimes do more harm because they are the virtues untethered from Christianity. They are the virtues gone mad. This is true of our day today. We have all sorts of things that we say that we value, all sorts of virtues that we say are virtuous. Freedom and love and kindness, and yet those are gone mad. They are not connected to God anymore, and so they are all off. The world's values are hostile to God, which means this. You should not just accept good words, good soundbite sentences, good themes. You should not just accept. You should not just accept for your kids as you're raising kids. Oh, this is about equality, or this is about freedom, or this is about discovering your purpose, or this is about happiness, or any such thing that in some sense might be good, the pursuit of knowledge. You need to be aware that the world's values are hostile to God. And since the values are hostile at their core, 
the world will not understand Christianity. Since the values are hostile to God, there will be an actual hostility that then happens. Since in the nature it is hostile, there will be active hostility. Will not understand Christianity. It will mock Christianity. It will think Christianity is stupid. It will think it's offensive. It will think it's bigoted, repressive, all sorts of things. Since the values in their core are actually different, even if using the same words, love and kindness and justice, since the values are actually hostile in their core, there will be actual hostility that takes place. That's what happened here. The word of the cross is foolishness. The world did not know God through wisdom. Wisdom is intended to know things, but the world, in using its wisdom, couldn't know God. It looks at the cross and says, that's stupid. That's idiotic. It's foolish. Since the values themselves are completely hostile, there is actual hostility that takes place. The Greeks valued wisdom, Paul says. And because of that, here he switches it to the Gentiles, using both of those back and forth. Because of that, the cross is foolishness. They look at the cross, can't understand it. Because their values are different, when they encounter Christianity, there's a hostility. This is stupid. This doesn't make any sense. This is dumb. It doesn't fit. And this is different in some sense today, when you think about the cross. People don't look at the cross today and just think it's this totally foolish thing. People wear cross jewelry. We have crosses on various steeples. There's uh, production companies. There are um, publishing companies with cross in the name. Like cross, we, we can look at the cross and think, okay, yeah, Christians obviously enjoy it. And non-Christians maybe sometimes even sentimentalize it. But back then, especially, the cross was seen as completely ridiculous and completely offensive and completely stupid. It, it, was, it, was, it was the most horrible form of execution that could be done to somebody. And not just physically, but it was intended to completely shame the person. Most of the time, you don't see the paintings like this. It's not how they show it to us. But most of the time, these people would be naked. And they would be publicly shamed, showing, look at what a loser this person is. Physically beaten, but also publicly shamed. For days, they would be hanging there in front of everybody, mocked, ridiculed. And it was a, a way for Rome to also say, we, look how we have defeated these people. These are the losers. Don't be like them. So it was a, an awful thing that existed. One of the earliest depictions that is known to exist of uh, the cross of Jesus is this. This is, the, this is a, a drawing rendered, but this is the actual thing in the, in the museum. And it's titled, Aleximenos Worships His God if you can't read this, and it's uh, graffiti. They found it on a, like a school. It was probably made by a teenager making fun of whoever Aleximenos was. And it's depicting Jesus on the cross as a jackass. 
saying, what a fool, how stupid. Uh, one of the Roman philosophers, thinks, thinkers said this, Cicero, you may recognize his name. He says the very word cross, this is a long time ago, okay? The, word, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Saying it's, it's so awful. Yes, we use it as Romans, but if you're a Roman citizen, you shouldn't even be, it, you shouldn't be thinking about this at all. It's so awful and shameful. So when it says that the cross is foolishness, when it says that the Gentiles, the Greeks, thought it was completely stupid, that's what it's getting at. Because their values of wisdom are hostile to God's wisdom, there is active hostility that then takes place. This is stupid. This is foolish. Now, for the Jews, it was power or signs that they valued. And there was hostility, therefore, because of that value. They expected from God powerful signs to be done. They expected God to show up in power. And a lot of that is in the history of the Old Testament, that you see God doing that, showing up in power various times. And so that had become a deep value of that culture and what they would expect if God's favor was there. If God is really for somebody, he's going to part the Red Sea. If God is really for somebody, he's going to bring plagues against their enemies. If God is really for somebody, then the walls of Jericho can come tumbling down. If God is really for somebody, he will preserve them in the fiery furnace. If God is really for somebody, that's what happens. That's what the Messiah would bring. Power, conquering, signs of God from heaven. Defeat of enemies. But the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. There's hostility because they look at that and say, God has cursed this person. They look at that and say, this person obviously does not have God's favor. This person obviously is against God because of the lack of power. Imagine the story of Moses ending with Moses' head being chopped off. No one would say, victory! Imagine the fiery furnace going a little different. So they look at the cross and say, this is obviously the absence of God. This is obviously God's curse upon this person. So because the world is hostile to God in its values, different definitions of power, different definitions of wisdom from what gods are, different definitions of everything today that we would say, of equality, of justice, of love, of kindness, of compassion, of family, of self, of happiness, different definitions create active hostility, create ridicule, create mockery, create under, misunderstanding, and this is, doesn't make any sense. It's a stumbling block. When I even think about it, I, I, I fall over it. That's what it creates, is active hostility. And today, even though the cross is a more prominent symbol that has gained some acceptance, it still is despised and misunderstood and thought to be foolish in many of the ways that it was then because of what it communicates. 
It's more popular in our culture to think of Jesus as a great teacher, to think of him as a great sympathizer, to think of him as a great unifier, than to think of him as someone that died on a cross, taking the wrath of God and bringing salvation to people. That is most often set aside. If you think about just how our world, the non-Christian world, thinks about Christianity, it's way more acceptable to, let's look at the teaching of Jesus. Let's look how he treated certain marginalized people. Let's look at how he sympathized with certain people and understands certain people. Now, I'm not saying these are not true. I'm just saying that's what's easier to understand than the cross. And even within the church, this often happens. You can go to many churches and hear things that are not about the cross of Jesus or not rooted in or built on the cross of Jesus. They are helpful coaching for life. They are inspiring messages that make you feel good. Even, and I don't know, maybe some of you, that's uh, what brought you here today. Maybe you won't come back because you're like, I didn't feel good after I left. We, we can sometimes even approach church, and churches even cater to this, of let me help people feel good. That's not the cross. Let me just give good practical teaching, again, separate from the cross. So even today, the cross is often set aside or short-circuited or finding ways to emphasize something different because the cross communicates what is actually most offensive to our wisdom and our power. It is still a stumbling block. It is still foolish in many ways to the values that we have drunk in, even if we haven't thought that we have. Because the cross says we are awfully, wickedly sinful. We are enemies of God. That is what the cross says. Think about how that is very different from all the things that we value. You are not inherently good. We are evil wicked, hostile, children of wrath, enemies of God. That's who we are. That's offensive, foolish, stupid, backwoods, redneck. I don't know, whatever else you could put in it. It's awful. Unenlightened. Medieval, dark ages, repressive. And the cross says, but God can save you, wants to save you, delights to save you, would give himself to save you. Now that might sound good, but also is offensive. I don't need someone else to save me. I save me. I do good things. That gets me access to God. I want God. I want Christianity. And I'll do the things to earn God's favor, God's approval, God's love, God's grace. So the cross, in both its offense to our human condition, but even in its beauty of salvation, 
is still thought to be completely crazy. It's a stumbling block. It offers to us a message that says we are so much worse than we think we are. The opposite of an American message. You are worse than you think you are. Our message is you're better than you think you are. What do you need? More self-esteem. The cross says, no, actually, you're worse than you think you are. Oh, that didn't help my self-esteem. But God is better than you think he is. He's a savior. He's a servant. He's humble. He loves. He delights to save. He's gracious. You don't have to perform or earn. He freely gives. It's, he's so much better than we think he is. He's not distant. He's involved. He's He's not out to get you or take something from you. He wants to give to you. It's, it's you are worse, but he is better. And for those that receive that, it's salvation. And to those that just have bought into the values around us that can't fathom it, it's awful. The world's values are hostile to God. Which means this. We can want so badly as we are trying to navigate through this world. We can want so badly. And listen, I, I know this is true. I feel this. We can want so badly to fit in, to not be odd, to not be thought of as backwards, to not be thought of as brainwashed or whatever language we want to put in there. We can want so badly to have things just be easy, which they are easier if you go with the flow. We can want so badly not to have to think about things either. To just say, okay, this is the world, this is the world, good. We can want that so badly. But there will be, if you're a Christian, there will be hostility to you and what you believe. The best wisdom, the best arguments, the best methods and teachers and stories, movies and music, the best that our world has to offer will ultimately be against Christianity and will be hostile to it. Which means, if you're a Christian, there's a few approaches that you have to take, that you have to take. Some of it is you need to just cut things out of your life. Stop listening. Stop taking things in. Stop watching things. Stop digesting things. Stop engaging in things. Stop. Some things just need to be rejected. Other things, we need to be very discerning and ask, what is this teaching? What are the values? What are the messages. What is the goal of this? How is this trying to shape my understanding and thinking? And be aware, whether that's physical objects like architecture or most prominently, because we consume so much, it's media, whether it's social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, SnapTalk, FaceChat, whatever, or Movies, Netflix, Amazon, etc. I'm not going to name them all. Take us forever. Some of it is discerning. What is this message? Why is it communicating this? 
What's the goal? What does it want me to believe? What kind of person does it want me to become? And understanding at root, it is hostile to God. So some of it is to totally reject. Some of it is we need to be more discerning and not just soak things in. You can't just soak things in. Some of the approach that we need to take is to resist things, to actually call out the wickedness in things, not just to reject, but actually to resist. That can look like different things, different people, but to actually say, this is bad. This should not be. Let's remove this. Some of it is, for especially for you parents, is to teach your children, your kids, your youth, to teach them. What do you think we often, as we watch things, whether it's commercials or movies, say, what do you think they're trying to sell you? What do you think, what values are they trying to communicate? What's off about this? What's good about this, but how is it twisted? What are they trying to say? What are they trying to show you? What are they trying to communicate about? What it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what it means to have a good life or what happiness is or what the goals are or what's wrong with the world or, what's the, or what we should be aiming for. What is it, what is it trying? You have to, parents, you have to help your kids. You have to do the work, but you have to help your kids also. That's part of what it means to teach your kids and train your kids in godliness is not just teach them Bible verses. That's true. But it's also how to teach them to live in a crazy world to identify the things that are being communicated so that they know what water is. We have to recognize that the world's values are hostile to God. Now, here's the good news. He knows that. He knows that. That's, I mean, it's, it's being addressed here. He knows this church, remember, this church has been started, come to know Jesus, and yet... Paul is having to correct them and say, you're buying into the wisdom and the power of this age. You're operating in the wisdom and power of this age. It connects back to last week where there's this disunity in the church. And in part, that's because they're buying into the wisdom and the power of their age. God knows that we're tempted to that. Whether we know it or not, we have soaked in some of the values of the culture around us. And God knows that, but he can help lead us out of it. That's what he's doing in part here in this passage. He's saying, I know you've started to buy into this. I know it's creeping back in. I know it's influencing the way that you're living. I want to help you get out of it. So we don't have to just say, well, if I'm a fish in water, what am I supposed to do? Just flop out and drown? Or whatever the opposite of drown is for a fish? Dry? What, I mean, what do I do? God helps us in the middle of it. He gives us a spiritual oxygen tank, scuba tank, whatever. So he, he knows that we are tempted. We, he knows that we're drawn in. And he here says, but I want to help you. I can strengthen you. You don't have to just soak it all in. Last thing. We need to realize the world has values we need to recognize that the world's values are hostile to God. And then finally, we need to rely and rest on God's truth or God's values. It is not just that these values, I've kind of already said this, but it's not just that these values are different. 
It's not just that the world's values and God's values are different. It is that the world's values ultimately will harm. He says the word of the cross is foolishness to not just the world, he doesn't just say that, but is foolishness to those who are perishing, which is the world. But to specifically say that is to say when you reject God's values, the values that you live by will lead to perishing. What does that mean? Well, it, it means ultimate spiritual death, but it also just means that things unravel. It creates problems and damage. That's part of what we see happening around us. When you look at problems and go, where did this come from? Why is it like this? Why are things wrong? It looks like perishing because the value system is crushing things. That's part of what we see. If you're a Christian, the more you tap into the world's values, the more that you will feel this in your life. Even when you look at things in your life that aren't working, or why is there conflict here, or why is this crumbling, or why is this not? Probably somewhere you've bought in to some of the world's values, and it's working itself out in your life. Why is there unhappiness? Why is there anxiety? Why is there probably, in large part, there's some buy-in to the world's values that are leading to a unraveling in portions of your life. And there's resistance to it, and the Holy Spirit's working, but when, whenever we see bad fruit, we have to say, what are the bad roots? And if you're not a Christian, maybe this is some of what you're feeling in your life. You know, we have most... Sundays, people that are checking things out are interested, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, it's, there's some pain in life that is, I, I want to maybe explore something different. And some of that unraveling or perishing is because there is a buy-in to the world's values. That's inevitably what happens, which is why God confronts those things. When he says, I will destroy, it's not that God's just okay with, okay, you've got your values, I've got my values. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? God is actively doing things against it. God confronts it, attacks it, shows this is not good. Because he loves he doesn't want people to perish. Because he loves, he doesn't just say, all right, go ahead and have your wisdom and I'll have my wisdom. Have your power and I'll have my power. No, because he loves, he confronts and says, this cannot be. But then he gives something better also. He doesn't only confront, he gives something better. He says, the things that you value, the things that you love, the things that that you are trying to seek fulfillment in and build a life in and build happiness in, the things that you long for, I actually give better, truer. You'll only actually find the truest fulfillment that you long for in wisdom and power if you find it in me. And so he says, there's Christ as the power of God and Christ as the wisdom of God. You're looking for wisdom and power. You're searching for it, but you're searching for it in a way that it's going to lead to perishing. 
You want wisdom, you want power, but you're going after it in a way that's actually different from the way God created it to be. But if you actually want wisdom, if you actually want true power, Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God. So it's not just that the world's values are hostile to God. It's also that the world offers these values that are false versions that can actually be found. That is part of what our name means. True life. It's how sad would it be to go pursuing after all these different versions of things that the world offers to us and yet it only is found and is truly found in him. So even in our name as a church, there's a positive vision that is displayed of you can have life, true life, but also inherent to the name is a rebuke or a confrontation saying, but you're finding it right now in false things and things that are hostile and it won't work. There is a false life that is being lived and there is true wisdom and true power that is available in him. The cross is true wisdom and true power. And there's a lot of different ways that that's true. It's true wisdom in that it shows us an unfathomable way to bring God's justice and God's mercy together. Only God's wisdom could figure that out. It's true wisdom in that it was God's plan all along, even when it looked like, looks like things aren't working out for you. God's wisdom shows, no, I know what I'm doing. It's true wisdom in that it shows that mercy is something that God gives to us instead of us having to earn salvation, which never works. And yet that's how all other religious systems are built. Only the cross shows God's true wisdom that we are, again, our condition is worse than we think, but that he gives us salvation. It's true wisdom. And that it shows that true wisdom is humble, not boastful. God taking on human flesh, humbling himself, the opposite of their wisdom. It's true power in him defeating on the cross. What looked like total loss was actually total victory. He defeats Satan. He has no claim on you anymore. He defeats sin. Its power over your life is broken through the cross. One day, it'll be fully demolished and the presence will be gone through the cross. He defeats death by dying because through the cross, you're given resurrection life. So the cross is true power and that it defeats these great enemies that we have. It's true power and that it's showing its power not through gaining, but through serving. It's true power in showing that you have to lose your life to gain your life. It's true power in showing peace. God made peace instead of his violence that we deserve. It's true power in showing sacrificial love. That the best way that another human can relate to another is through laying down their life. Jesus as the true human and as true God does both of those things. So the cross is true wisdom and true power that he gives. And all of that is not just out there, but this true wisdom and this true power is what he 
gives to you, uses for you, offers to you, makes available to you, and is pleased to give. Which is why when we receive this, we don't perish, but we are saved. Paul says, those who are being saved. There's different ways that the Bible will use the term saved. There's a definitive once sense, and yet he says those who are being saved, like perishing, those who are dead, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. The more that you receive God's wisdom and power in the cross, you are being saved. You are, you're beginning to understand more and more who he is, and your life is more and more changing to experience all of his goodness. So we live in an insane world. You face, we face cultural pressure and values, and we, if we want to navigate through it first, we have to be able to understand, assess, navigate the world's values. So if you want to do that, you have to first see that there are values, understand that they are hostile to God, and then see that he gives something better. Are you taking in what he gives? Are you soaking in what he gives? The answer isn't only to reject this, but to take in who he is, to soak in who he is, to rest in who he is. When we take communion, that's part of what we do together every week. I told you that our celebrations and our rhythms and our practices, they all shape us. And that's part of why coming together weekly and receiving communion, remembering the wisdom and the power of the cross is so valuable to our navigating through an insane world. It's to remember this is true power. This is true wisdom. A God that would give himself for me. A God that would humble himself for me. A God that shows me my wickedness as a sinner and yet saves me in his grace as a savior. To remember that. To take it in. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us to be shaped by that wisdom and that power. If you're a Christian, hopefully you grabbed one of those little cups on the way in. If you didn't, you can grab one of those and can take it when you are ready. We remember his greater wisdom, his greater power. And, and then what happens when you do that? What happens as you rest and soak in his wisdom, in his power? It, does, it, it helps you to discern the things around you. If this is wisdom, if this is power, then that's not. If these are his values, then that's not. It helps you discern. The more you take him in, the more you're able to discern. It also helps you to receive his better gift so that you're full and not needing it somewhere else. And ultimately, then it helps us to live in a different way living in his version of power as we relate to one another, living in his version of wisdom as we relate to one another, living in his version of everything as we relate to one another. It changes actually how we live. That's what Paul's getting at. He's not just giving them an ethical understanding change, but it, it leads to different ways of relating together. So as you take communion, confess sin where you've maybe, maybe God has even helped you see where you've bought into the world's values confess sin or confess even just a laziness of not paying attention and ask his wisdom, his power, his truth to go deeper into your heart. Take communion when you're ready. We'll respond in a few songs. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. Father, I thank you for
the cross and the wisdom and power that we see, your grace, your humility, your strength, all shown in a truer and better way on the cross. Let us, even now, as we take communion and respond to you and sing, let these things deepen into our hearts and shape us in your truth and your values. In your name, Jesus. Amen.